Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This, of course, is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. And please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever it's coming through your earbuds right now. We are on Instagram and Twitter at Pop Pantheon Pod. I am at DJ L O U I E X I V. We also have merch available at poppantheonpod.com, and of course our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where we published at least three bonus episodes of this show per month, is available at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Two quick announcements. First is the next installment of My Queer Pop Party Gorgeous Gorgeous is happening in Los Angeles on December 16th. This will be the last party of the year, so come one, come all. Get in your last Gorgeous Gorgeous of 2023 before you head home from the holidays. So we'll see you at Resident in downtown Los Angeles on December 16th. The ticket link is in the show notes of this episode. And finally, we're asking all of you for your opinions on our Pantheon rankings this year. So per usual, Russ and I are gearing up to do our annual Pantheon reassessment episode for the year. We're going to be looking at every episode we've done this year and where the artists ended up in the Pantheon. And I'm going to be providing potentially some reassessments. And we want to hear from you guys about Pantheon rankings you disagreed with, things you thought I got wrong. Do you think Bruno Mars belongs in tier two? Do you think Shakira belongs in tier one? One, do you think Charlie Puth belongs in tier five? This is your moment. Voice notes get priority, but we will also take written emails to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Everything can get sent there. Voice notes, emails, whatever. Tell us why we got something wrong, but don't just write in and say we got something wrong. Explain your case. Tell us why an artist belongs in a different tier than we put them in. And you just might hear your call or email on our Pantheon reassessment episode coming up. All right, so this week's episode is also a yearly tradition. It is our 2023 Year in Pop episode. I invited the incredible Shad D'Souza onto the show. Shad and I are talking about our three favorite albums and three favorite songs of the year each, and we're picking out major trends in pop, what they all say about the state of pop stardom in general, and sharing some great music. And also we talk about some disappointments, some honorable mentions, etc. It was a really, really fun conversation. I got turned on to some great music from Shad. We got really into the weeds about music I had spent a lot of time thinking about already. So incredible episode. I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation about the year in pop 2023 with Shad D'Souza. So I'm back with the incredible Shad D'Souza. Shad, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm thrilled to have you. Somehow we have completed another trip around the sun and pop music did indeed happen during that rotation. So we're here today to speak about the year in pop 2023 we've come to the table with three of our favorite albums three of our favorite songs we're going to talk about some of our most disappointing moments of the year we're going to talk about maybe some honorable mentions that didn't quite make our list but feel important to mention and i think through the conversation i'd like to as much as we can take a macro step back and just think about pop as a genre and see what we can pull out about what the year 2023 in pop was like so maybe before we get into our specific list and i think those will be good forays into having the broader conversation as we go along. But is there anything you want to say about pop in 2023 that just feels like a top line thing we should put a pin in before we get into some of our specific faves? Like, how did this year go for you? Like, how was it quality wise for you? And were there major trends that feel important to put a pin in before we get into the specifics here in your mind? Yeah, I would say that it's been a disappointing year in terms of marquee artists, but Overall, there were some really strong kind of like more niche pop records, which we're going to talk about that I think were truly kind of superlative. I think something that was really apparent to me this year was that pop music as kind of like a chart force is like basically completely dead. And I think that's where the artists who did kind of achieve that rare kind of like critical and commercial dominance were doing things that are kind of completely different to what Mm. is kind of an established formula or that kind of thing. And we'll talk about that a bit later with especially one of my records I've chosen and one of your records this year has really driven home that element of like doing things kind of outside the box is not kind of like a commercial death knell, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. It feels like a year where I guess like 
in an ongoing trend that's really been going on for the past 15 years, but definitely specifically in the last 10, where like the micro pop star, the working class pop star, the niche legend pop star, pops middle class, part of which you wrote about in your great New York Times piece uh, a couple months ago, are really the most important part of what's happening in pop music right now. And as you mentioned, it's a weird time to try to be like an A-list pop star. Like those who are trying for it aren't necessarily succeeding. Those who are already there aren't necessarily making their best work and there also appears to be in my mind like a bit of a disconnect between who has hit songs and who's a big pop star like that's a weird thing that's happening also in my mind it's like the billboard hot 100 chart almost feels like disconnected from like the world building pop superstars like it just feels more and more like there's these siloed universes and it's hard to like find a center of gravity in pop music at the moment it feels like more than ever this year I think yeah and I think we're seeing the reaffirming of the new status quo which is like if you're a pop star I think it's probably more about being a celebrity and if you have hits that's kind of a bonus but hits will not make you a pop star and they're not necessary Mm. to be a pop star right bb rexa step up so many hits so little pop stardom yeah or even you know the (laughs) inverse of that Beyonce, you know, where are the hits? Right. But, you know, this year she right. was still as famous as she's ever been. 100%. Or even in a way, Taylor, I mean, obviously Taylor had hits this year and Midnight was a big album, but like the general massiveness of Taylor feels so much bigger than Midnight's and its attendant singles. And I think outside of Antihero, pop stars can sort of like bubble hits onto the charts that don't even feel like real hits. Like I think Karma was a really interesting example of this. I was actually talking on Twitter to a couple people about this yesterday, but like Karma technically like a number two single, but like doesn't doesn't really feel like a big hit in a certain way. And of course, Taylor's big hit of the summer comes from an album in 2019. Like, it's just a very strange moment where, like, even with an artist like Taylor who has a big album and has had some hit singles, it's like her pop stardom feels just like so much grander than like what the album and like the album rollout and single game can even like pretend. Whereas like if you think about like Janet in the late 80s or even like Britney at a certain point in her early career, like it all felt so much like centered around the album and the rollout of the singles. Like it just doesn't really feel like that's part of it anymore. And of course, then you have so many big pop stars from Lana to Billy to whomever where like hit singles don't even feel like that important to them or to their career careers really yeah and i mean taylor is actually kind of the best example of this right now because you know you've got a perfect comparison point in 1989 taylor's version where when 1989 the first version came out that was so much about like shake it off went to number one straight away then blank space went to number one then bad blood went to number one and it was this kind of thing of like they were these kind of like north stars and then everything else operated around that and i think this is maybe not the first year in her career but like the kind of most significant point at which the music Music has felt totally extraneous to her as a star. Totally. And it's kind of Absolutely. nice to, if there's one good thing about the Taylor's version project, it's that we have these nice direct comparison points. Yes, 100%. The plus side of this is that, you know, pop as a world building exercise has become more refined and made for a lot of interesting music, you know, sometimes in the center, as we'll talk about with some of the records on this list, but a lot of times like somewhere around the margins. Pop stars who I think embrace or recognize that that's not the way that it works anymore I think are having the most success in terms of like at least creative endeavors and I think we're going to get into that with a number of these albums but I think the more that pop stars can kind of embrace this aspect or this changing sort of imperative around stardom away from the singles game I think it creates a world where you can have a very successful career making interesting album work and sort of avoiding maybe needing to be in the singles race and I think that that created some interesting avenues forward for like as we mentioned pop's middle class or for even big stars who like Beyonce I think being a good example in last year's you know situation where she of course she had a couple of big songs but the real thrust of the renaissance sort of success story was like how it worked as a world building album how it worked as like a you know a complete set of songs how it worked as a fashion aesthetic as we saw at the tour you know it's kind of like this move that I think Beyonce also was also pretty important in creating I think in her 2013 visual album where it was like okay I'm removing myself from the singles race and I'm creating worlds with these records and that's more important like these worlds that my already established gigantic fan base can just sort of live inside of and I don't necessarily need the singles as you mentioned the singles can be nice incidental boosts but aren't necessary anymore yeah that's actually so true like it's less about not having commercial dominance and it's more about the singles chart is like so removed from 
pop stardom right. now. And I think right. that is like a really interesting distinction and we don't have time to go into it now, but you're right. It is about the singles race becoming kind of its own thing. All right. So let's get into our list. I want to start with our albums and I want you to share your first album first because full disclosure, this is also my favorite album of the year. I didn't put it on my list because I wanted us to have variety and have a bunch of stuff to talk about. But the first album on your list is SZA's SOS, which actually came out in late 2022, but I think qualifies here because it was kind of after everybody's best of list came out and had the thrust of its success through 2023. So can you talk to me a little bit about this before we get into it? Obviously, for people that don't know, it spent 10 weeks at number one in the US. It was certified triple platinum. It sold over 3 million copies. She's obviously up for nine Grammys, including the top three album of the year, song of the year, and record of the year for this. It has three top 10 singles, including her first number one hit, Kill Bill. What was it about SOS that spoke to you and sort of maybe speaks to some of the things that we're speaking about right now or goes against them, I guess, in some ways? Yeah, I mean, this is such an interesting record. And I think its success is partially because, you know, obviously, Caesar released Control in 2017, kind of a lifetime ago. And since then, she hasn't been quiet. She has featured on so many songs and toured and that kind of thing. But what she does on her records is so different to what she does as a featured artist that I think people were really so hungry for album scissor, so to speak. And Control basically never left the Billboard 200. You know, that was right. real quiet success story. And so by the time SZA was ready to put out SOS, the, we were at this fear pitch of like people really wanting it and expecting something really big. And mm. I honestly think it's that rare case of like she delivered basically in my mind basically every conceivable level like I think her lyrics are way sharper on this record I think the production is on a kind of taste level I probably like what she's doing on Control more but I think the production here is so varied and so exciting and like kind of taps into contemporary pop and rap and R&B while sounding very different as well and I think what she's doing in terms of dexterity and skill is insane like these really crazy rap songs on here and you know she's getting into that really wild head voice that she has and doing so much at every conceivable moment while making it seem like basically reading someone's diary. The artist who I most think about when I listen to this record is someone like Fiona Apple, who makes very mm. effortless-ish music that is like really personal and intimate, but also is so dexterous and so complex and accessible mm. at the same time. And that's kind of the main reference point that I always come back to when I listen to SOS and think about who it reminds me of. But in terms of like mm. a direct comparison in terms of like style and scope, like obviously in some ways kind of throws back to Miseducation of Lauren Hill, mm. you know, this kind of world beating kind of like combination hip-hop r&b record that because of just how incredible and on some levels radical it is cuts through to this mainstream audience in a way that is maybe a little bit surprising i've rarely stopped listening to this record since it came out it still hits really hard for me agree it's really sticky i'm surprised at how much it stuck with me it's actually you know it's interesting because in approach it feels like a very different kind of record than control which felt like a very sort of self-contained traditional album-like album to me that was a journey that you took from front to back, whereas this is a kind of sprawling and messier sort of idea. I mean, it's a very long album. You know, one of the things that continuously astounds me about SOS is how much it's doing, which I think you were just speaking to. Like, it's attempting so much in genre. It's attempting so much in mood, in singing, in vocal texture. I mean, it's really got a lot going on and how successful she is at almost everything she tries. And I'm not somebody that tends to gravitate towards these sort of data dump sprawling records and I think when SOS first came out I was a little bit like oh shit because I think a lot of times that can lead to a lot of material that just feels perfunctory and unnecessary even if there are great songs in the mix but the one of the most impressive parts about SOS is how essential 95% of this music is to me like every single part of this and it's so wide ranging as you mentioned like we get SZA doing pop punk we get SZA doing like traditional pop ballads we get SZA doing rap we get SZA doing R&B that sounds like throwback R&B we get like trap I mean it's like omnivorous in that way. Like 
She is so successful in almost everything she tries here. And it feels strangely cohesive because of her sort of diaristic, you know, I feel like they almost sound like text messages. There's a certain idiom and way that SZA writes and speaks that feels incredibly germane to the moment of how we speak, how we think about our lives internally. Like, I feel like she voices a very particular contemporary way in which we like process our feelings, both verbally, online and like inside of ourselves that I think is like what makes her so impactful. I mean, I went to the SOS tour and every single person in the room knew every word to every single song on this record. Like SZA is hitting something really deep that extends so far beyond the idea of hit singles. It's like so interesting because I think this speaks to our earlier conversation, which is like, it's great to have seen SZA pop off a few hit songs from this record. Kill Bill was huge. Now she's got Snooze, another legitimate huge hit. And you know, another thing we could talk about is how rare it is for even major stars to get more than one hit off of an album. So, you know, the long tail of SOS is notable in that way. But I kind of feel like this record would have been huge if none of these songs were hit singles anyway. Like it, it almost doesn't matter. It's like SZA is speaking to something in the soul of the listener, of the pop music audience of this moment that feels like she's, I mean, I hate to use this term because it's so cliche, but it's like voice of a generation shit. This record is the apex of that. As you said, her writing is more sharp, more refined. You know, obviously like the gut punch sort of emotional excavation, the way she's able to sort of deal with the messiness of love, life, etc. in this very honest, raw way. I mean, a true tour de force. Like this album is so, so, so good. Yeah. And it's interesting. I remember listening to the stream and being like, I don't really like this. I was like, it's it's long. It's a bit messy. Mm. And then just the, in the weeks after it came out, I was just listening to it on repeat every single day and like every single time I listened to a new lyric would pop out to me and it and it is interesting this thing you say of like she does speak to kind of like the way people think and think about themselves and talk now an interesting comparison point for me is someone like Phoebe Bridges who obviously features on Ghost in the Machine and Phoebe I think is praised a lot for doing that as well but in my mind what Phoebe does is so broad strokes almost kind of like sledgehammery compared to how SZA does it like there's something so mm. graceful and like find conversational yeah it's it's conversational but every word is in place every syllable is in place what SZA mm -hmm. is doing as a lyricist I think is like incredibly refined in a way that I almost think she doesn't get enough credit for when I kind of listen to the way she does this push-pull or like seesaw between almost like tweet or mm. text like lines and then something like incredibly internal in the way her rhymes and phrasing are working with that it does really feel kind of like an instant classic to me like I'm really still so blown away by this record but it is interesting what you say yeah. like SOS tour I saw it as well and I experienced the same thing I was like people know every word to every song SZA was great I thought she was performing really well and I thought she handled like dancing while singing like it's a really hard thing to do and she did a lot of it at the same time I thought it was like an unsuccessful show mm. this whole boat thing thing and like the big production like I was so <laughs> thrown by how it tapped into nothing I love about the record something about it felt very amiss to me even though I was like this mm. is obviously so well done and really fun but I was like in terms of what Sis is doing I think I would have liked to have seen her just with like a band there and like interacting with the mm. audience and like I was a little thrown by how kind of maximalist it was interesting you know I had a kind of different experience of it and it speaks, I think, to our broader conversation about how pop stardom has changed. Because I think this record, it's so insular in so many ways. I mean, of course, there's kind of big poppy moments on it, but even those feel restrained and insular to me. I think that's kind of Scissor's approach. She's a very internal artist. These are not the kind of songs and records that would have been big pop radio hits in most other eras of pop history, in my opinion. These are not glossy, shiny Max Martin songs. You know, these are very personal, intricate, idiosyncratic R&B and, you know, obviously genre omnivorous records. And I thought she did an impressive job of scaling that up to an arena. I, I was very curious how she was going to scale some of this quieter, kind of insular, internal music to an arena scale, because that's a hard thing to do. And in many parts of pop history, this music wouldn't have been performed in an arena. Erica Badu, for instance, who's clearly someone that's influential on, says, uh, you know, when she was at the peak of her career, she wasn't necessarily doing big arena spectacular shows at Madison Square Garden. So I was very interested to see how she was going to scale it up. And I thought she was quite successful in that. And I was very impressed by the way that that show felt arena ready without necessarily having like a ton of arena ready songs necessarily. Like I thought that that was a very difficult task 
task that she had. And I found, I mean, maybe it's just that I'm taken with her just general star quality, which she definitely has kind of oozing out of her. But like, I felt like the show was weirdly successful given the task at hand. These songs are intimate. Like these songs you'd, it would make more sense in a quieter, smaller space in some instances. And yet the show felt very engaging as an arena spectacular, which I think was pretty difficult. I wonder, you know, they must have been grappling with that, I guess, with the music. So that was my experience of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it was the best possible manifestation of that as a big pop show. But I just think I was a bit like, ooh, this is not mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. my experience of the record. Well, anyway, I think this record is definitely the best of the year. Like, we're not actually ranking our choices this way. But for me, this was by far the album that lingered the longest, has the most nooks and crannies. It was one of those things where the sprawl really benefited it because it was like I had this whole slew of songs I was into when I initially listened to it. And then over the course of the year, like new songs opened up for me. And I just now feel so much of a connection to like the vast majority of this music. And I just think it's brilliant. And says this music has always been about being messy. And I feel like she made the form messy here in a way that the actual music is itself. And I think that's part of the reason why it worked. Like it's a messy album from a messy artist who like makes messiness their lingua franca. And I think that like it really worked in that way for me. And the last thing I just wanted to bring up is influence wise that I was thinking about just because we made an episode on her is it almost feels like the manifestation of the dreams of Aaliyah in some ways. And I thought about Aaliyah in a lot of ways, you know, someone who is definitely beginning to play with the boundaries of R&B and creating an experimental sort of genreless approach to that, especially on her last album. And I thought explicitly of the way that shirt with its kind of arrhythmic drum programming and stuff reminds me so much of the great Aaliyah songs. And I just was wanted to point out that lineage that kind of hit me when we were making our Aaliyah episode. All right, so my first album, again, these are not in any particular order, is Troy Sivan's Something to Give Each Other. I have been a Troy fan, I would say, not like a super fan, but have enjoyed Troy's music in the past increasingly. I liked Bloom. I know Bloom is kind of divisive, it seems like to me, amongst pop listeners. I was a Bloom apologist. I find Troy's milieu as like, the pop star that shares the perspective of aching gay lust most clearly to me to be kind of well-defined and has been in his career for a minute. But I got really excited about this record based around the singles and visual presentation and rollout. I feel like this was an album that took rollout very seriously mm. in a way that I think served it really well. It had a real aesthetic world that it began to build with Rush with the choreography in the first video. And then of course continued through Got Me Started. And I was really excited about this record in a way I kind of wasn't expecting to be. And I feel like it really delivered for the most part to me. I really feel like this album has a sense of playfulness. It's emotionally full. I enjoy the sonic textures of it. I actually was a bit surprised upon hearing it at first that it wasn't so much of a club album. I think Rush was a little bit of a red herring in terms of how this record actually sounds. <laughs> But in a way that worked well for me, because I think what Troy does well, as I mentioned, I said this on a, a Patreon episode about him. It's like if Carly Rae Jepsen's entire sort of artistic POV is capturing like the moment you realize like you're in love with somebody, I think Troy's point of view is capturing the moment you realize you're horny for somebody. And this album approaches that from a number of different angles, both from sort of like the euphoria of that and also from the vulnerability or sadness of that. And I think this album has a lot of moments of the highs of casual sex on something like what's the time where you are it obviously has moments of lust around falling in love with a straight guy uh, one of your girls and then it has also like moments of more intricate and thorny sticky moments of lust like on the song still got it which is about kind of like seeing an old flame or an old partner and realizing you're still horny for them i still got it back i still got it back cuz you've got what you have and i still want it 
I just thought that this album really works. Like it's one of those records where it's like every song is good to me for the most part. I think my biggest drawback with it and the question that I still hold around Troy Sivan is a question that I think Catherine St. Asif addressed pretty well in a piece in Stereo Gum recently, which is like, it is the chicest pop album of the year. It sounds so tasteful. And I wonder if in some ways that sometimes maybe like takes away from like some edginess or takes away some texture from it. But at the end of the day, it's a really economical 35 minute album that I think delivers a lot of fullness in that context. And I think he was very successful in what he set out to do in terms of like creating an album about gay love, sex and lust that sort of explored the possibilities of that outside of just pining or about like traditional romance love and I think that that really worked well for me on these songs how did you feel about this album I think it's so sublime like it's weird again I wasn't so sure and I interviewed him so I, I was listening to the stream and I again I was like I don't know about this like but since I've been listening to it a lot and it's just so well written it feels mm. really good to listen to it kind of goes by in a blast the way it's paced and structured that question of like oh is it too smooth is it too tasteful that to me is a problem when we're talking about Carly Rae Jepsen it's a problem when we're talking about whoever all these kind of like middle class pop stars you know all these people who are popular on the internet but have no bearing in real life and it's not a problem when the songs are this well written and I think that is kind of of like the implicit question here of like technically Troy fits in that milieu he's very referential of classic pop music and like he wears his influences on his sleeve but I think the difference is that he is a really strong songwriter with a really strong point of view yes. and this album is like so purely fun to listen to and so poignant because like I, I was like a fan of Bloom but there were definitely kind of skips on it for me I've been a fan since Blue Neighborhood I've seen him a few times I loved the last EP In a Dream but mm -hmm. listening to this I'm like it's so sophisticated and yes. smart and well made it's one of my favorites of the year as well he's a very evocative singer I find like he's very moving as a vocalist I mean he's not like a powerful singer per se but I think he really uses his voice well like there's a lot there when Troy sings he affects me emotionally in a way that I think gives these songs like the thrust that maybe the like overly tasteful I don't even know if you call it overly tasteful but just sort of the smoothest it's a very chic album well but see that critique to me is frustrating because I'm like what do you people want not you but like well 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 the answer to that question is I think Rush had a little bit of a day glow tackiness to it that I think really helped people get into it and I also think that got me started with that kind of like borderline ear irritating sample. There's elements of kind of tackiness that I think can just add texture to some of like the lush chicness of the album. It's not a critique per se. I This is my on my list of favorite albums of the year. It's just it's been brought up. It's something that registered for me before I read that article on Stereo Gum of just like, what is the sort of production POV here besides just taste? You know what I mean? Like it's just an interesting thought that I held about this record over time. But as with you, I immediately got past whatever those reservations were and just was taken with the songwriting, the vocal performances, and the kind of like lush world of this kind of globetrotting pop star who's sort of like unpacking various aspects of his sexuality. A lot of these songs have to do with like, I'm in this city, I'm in that city. Like there's a certain sort of like globetrotting, like you can picture him in first class hopping from city to city as you listen to this. There's singing in various languages. There's references to Japan. You know, it's, this is very much Troy specific. And yet I also think speaks to certain unique aspects of gay hookup culture that I'm happy to hear a pop star addressing in this way. And I don't think that anyone else necessarily is mm. yeah i mean it's just a really exciting carefree record but its whole point of view is not simply like let's go crazy and party like he said it was like very influenced by that feeling of like it's summer and you're just kind of like stumbling around and yes. meeting people and that kind of thing and I think it captures that really well like I think its tastefulness Agreed. is almost deployed in this very specific way where the whole thing feels incredibly casual yes. it's almost like proving that like your album can be casual and fun and conversational and carefree without sacrificing emotional integrity or like star quality and i think that is yes. kind of what's most impressive about it i agree okay so let's talk about our next two which i weirdly feel like are sister albums to each other in a way you go first which is chapel roan's the rise and fall of a midwest princess this album is the debut album by the missouri-born queer singer and songwriter it came out in september it actually started rolling 
selling out singles back in 2020 when Pink Pony Club became a bit of a viral hit. It is produced notably, this is the reason it's connected to what my next record will be, by Dan Nigro, and it has not been a massive commercial success. This album hasn't really charted anywhere, but it seems to be a bit of a buzzy music intelligentsia slash gay pop Twitter phenomenon in its own way. You just say that, but like it does really scan to me is she's in for a hard go of it because this is not the kind of pop record and she's not the kind of pop star that gay guys, I think, are prone to get around. Mm. She's so on and like musical theater and interestingly Olivia fits the same brief to me is like I, yes. I don't really know <laughs> a lot of gay guys who like stand for Olivia because they both have this like theater kid quality and they don't have that <laughs> like and endearingly so they don't have that like diva quality right 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 I right. Lo- just love this record and like on paper I think it's the kind of thing that would frustrate me a lot for example like you said like queer singer you know like I get a lot of emails being like listen to new queer pop singer blah blah, blah. and I'm like queer is not a genre <laughs> it is this thing of like a lot of artists are marketed to me as this new queer sensation and I'm like I don't care if you're queer like is the music good but I think with Chapel Run the music is good and it's crazy and she's yes. such almost like Scissor like if you think of a song like Casual the lyrics on that are just insane yes. but it's this like poignant ballad It's funny to me because it kind of sounds like Boy Genius, but is so much more interesting and fun than Boy Genius. And like, this is what Boy Genius should sound like and what their lyrics should be like. Or like, then, you know, my favorite song on the album, Red Wine Supernova, it's got this Shania thing going on, but it is Mm -hmm. also weird. a whole Patsy Cline thing later like she is so good at what she does and what she does is being crazy yes it's such a right. wacky record that I just couldn't help be completely charmed by it even on songs that sound just like the kind of songs that like not even RuPaul would touch like super graphic ultra modern girl I'm like, God, that is a bad song, but I just love it. She sells it so well, it couldn't not be one of my favorites of the year. It's such a good album. And as you mentioned, like she has a very direct and sort of simple songwriting style that like really hits you in the face. I mean, you brought up casual, obviously, you know, the lyrics about we're in our car and you're eating me out or we're at your dinner with your parents and we're fucking in the bathroom. Like, you know, it's both like funny, but really poignant at the same time. And, you know, talk about a record that, you know, in contrast to the Troy Sivan album, like sort of relishes in bad taste. I mean, like, this is what I mean. Like, this is where sort of like, this is kind of what I'm talking about. Like, this is where like tackiness, bad taste, like can add texture. Like this record is very resonant emotionally, but also is like incredibly fun and tacky at the same time and I really enjoy that dichotomy and sort of in the mold of SZA it traverses a lot of genres and styles like you were saying like pop rock dance pop disco there's like some Sheryl Crow-esque like country rock in there as you mentioned there's like Patsy Cline there's Shania like it's really omnivorous and it's also very referential I mean a lot of references to like 90s I you know I was thinking about Gwen Stefani on Hot to Go I was thinking about Animatronic from the Scissor Sisters on Super Freaky Disco Whatever Girl I forget what the name of that song is notably talking Talked about how obsessed she is with Teenage Dream, like that's being like an air text for her, you know, talking about a perfect pop record that's also kind of tacky. And it's an album about the American dream in many ways. I mean, this is a story about a girl that moves west and self-actualizes. Like this is like a very much like a classic American tale in many ways, but like told through a queer lens. And I really just think this album is so much fun. And, it, and I think we should talk about it in tandem with my next record, which is Olivia Rodrigo's Guts, also produced by Dan Nigro, because there's a lot of things that these records share in common with each other. I mean, there's a real heavy pop rock influence there's a kind of spoken word sort of style of singing and talking kind of thing that goes on there's beat changes that dan is clearly into like on a song like all american bitch or they you know, kind of feels in tandem with a song like feminine nomenon to me and I make light of the darkness, I've got sun in my 
I like calling All American Bitch a beat change. It's, yes. That's just how a lot of rock songs are. No, <laughs> no. That song is clearly a head fake. Shot, give me a break. That song is commentating on a bigger issue on Olivia Rodrigo's album, which is this weird bifurcation between the pop rock songs and her folk ballads, which continues to be like a weird sort of thing she hasn't totally figured right. out how to navigate yet, I don't think. Well, but yeah. that song, I think, is supposed to be a nodding head fake at that to people. Like, you think this is about to be a folk ballad and then it kicks into gear and is actually a pop rock song in the middle of it. So I don't see it that way. The last thing that I think these records share in common is there's a real sense of humor. Like Olivia's songs are funny. Like Get Him Back is a genuinely hilarious song. And so are a number of the songs on Chapel's album. Like there's a real sense of humor in the midst of sort of a lot of emotional density and honesty that I think kind of creates a lot of connective tissue between these albums. Of course, Olivia's is 10,000 times more tightly stitched and less idiosyncratic and eccentric and bizarre. What do you think about Guts? It's interesting. Okay, I really, really like Guts. It's like wholly unsuccessful as an album to me. I'm like, Mm, Jesus, almost all the ballads are just absolute garbage to me, with the exception of Lacey, which I think is insane and one of the best songs on the record. A lacy apologist in our midst. Okay. Yeah, I think that song is really funny and good and, and cruel. But the strength of the rock songs on the album make it one of my favorites of the year. Something went wrong just in the way it's structured. Like, And if you listen to the bonus tracks that were only on the vinyl, there are like four of them. Like a song like Obsessed, which I highly recommend everyone search out. I'm like, why wasn't that a single? Like that song is crazy and like so fun and exciting. I really like the point of view of Guts, which is Olivia in this kind of agonizing battle between like feminist duty and these base impulses towards <laughs> desire <laughs> and jealousy. Mm-hmm. You know, she's grown up in this time where every pop star is a feminist, but no one wants to grapple with like what it means to be a feminist in the day-to-day world or like what kind right. of duty that creates to other women. And here she is on this record where she's like, you know, relentlessly obsessed with comparing herself physically to other women. This is always so- She is also constantly having to deal with the judgment of her friends and also doing things that disappoint her friends. She's got this rival on Lacey who she hates. Like, she's saying the cruelest things about, but she's also obsessed with. And then on Get Him Back, she's like, do I hate this guy? Do I want him back? I think Mm -hmm. that is such a compelling, interesting viewpoint. And of course, there's that really heartbreaking lyric on Vampire where she's like, I regret saying all your ex-girlfriends were crazy and laughing along with you. Like, Yeah, right. That's one of her best lyrics ever. Yeah, like, I think without putting too fine a point on it, she really captures this feeling of, it's almost like, how am I supposed to be a good person when like all my instincts are pulling me towards quote-unquote badness and I think that is like such a compelling complex point of view for a record especially a record that's relatively early in your career yeah I mean that's something that I think also kind of ties it to SZA in some ways I mean SZA's constantly dealing with her impulses pulling her into negative or self-destructive modes I mean that's like a big part of SZA's musical POV I completely agree and I want to echo your sentiments the ballads largely do not work for me but thankfully I think more so than Sour they lead so much more heavily into the uptempo rock tracks and they are so good I mean Bad Eye Idea Right is maybe her best single ever. Fuck it, it's fine. Yes, I know that he's my ex, but can't do me what we connect. I only see him as a friend, the biggest lie I ever said. Ballad of a Homeschool Girl is so great. Love is Embarrassing is so great. I mean, she goes so hard in those songs that it only highlights, I think, the weakness of the ballads. Like, you immediately just become deflated. You know what it you know what it weirdly reminds me of, Sean? It reminds me of, like, mid-period Mariah Carey albums where, like, half the albums were, like, these incredibly effervescent, amazing, intricate forays into, like, hip-hop, pop, and R&B, and then she just would go back to making, like, a boilerplate schlocky ballad, and it would just feel so bifurcated and strange that it made for such, like, a weird listen in a weird way 
that's what Guts kind of reminds me of. But I also echo your sentiments in the fact that the strong songs, and there are enough of them, are so strong that this album just like couldn't not be on my list because I just think the good songs are so fucking good. And I think she made a really smart decision with when people want to go rock these days, they turn to this guy, Andrew Watt, who is not a rock yes, producer. Right. He's a pop producer who, who makes this very shiny, like annoying, polish version of rock. And she clearly has really specific... Didn't he do Plastic Hearts? Yeah, he did. But with Dan Nigro, you know, there are very clear reference points. Like on All American Bitch, she has this really sneering thing that reminds me a lot of Liz Fair. And even like the going from quiet to loud really fast. That really reminds me of classic Liz Fair songs or like Ballad of a Homeschool Girl. This kind of like disorienting, dizzy words tumbling over each other, you know, reminds me of like Courtney Barnett or like, you yes, know, and then, definitely. you know, like Get Him Back, obviously is Weezer vibes. So like, I think the fact that she's clearly a fan of this music and had these reference yes. points where she was like, I want to do this, I want to do this. It helps her so much because it makes the song sound really real and not yes. like she's just not kind of on. like right. an interloper yes. who has never listened to this music before. And I think that is part of why the album is so successful. I completely agree. One of my favorite little flourishes before we move on is when she adopts Gwen Stefani's Cupid doll voice for a second on Love is Embarrassing. I can know nothing. Her knowledge and sort of intricate steepedness in what she's homaging allows us to transcend just like mere pastiche. And also great lyrics. I mean, she's really come a long way to me as a lyric writer and a lot of these songs just really nail what they're going for. And this is a really, really good set of songs and I just hope that we can continue to move away from from the folk ballads and more heavily towards what she's clearly the best at and what she feels the most passionate about. So this record was a very successful album on the whole to me. All right, let's talk about our last two albums. 2024 has been an absolutely bonkers year for pop music. It feels like every single girly in the universe, and fine, even some men, has dropped a new record. It's been a lot to process. Thank God our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, has got you covered. Every single week, we drop a bonus episode of this show, going long on everything from Taylor's The Tortured Poets Department to Beyonce's Cowboy Carter, Dua Lipa's Radical Optimism, Casey Musgrave's Deeper Well, Ariana Grande's Eternal Sunshine, Billie Eilish's Hit Me Hard and Soft, Charlie XCX's Brat, and all the other big albums from this year, and all with a coterie of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. When we're not talking new albums, we're digging through new singles on our new music speed rounds, deep diving on classic albums, recapping all the big tours, and so much more. All that, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and tons of other great perks. So sign up at the icon tier now by going to patreon.com slash poppantheon, or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You can also now subscribe for the audio only directly in the Apple Podcasts app. So you have quite a left field choice as your third album of the year that I'm sure a lot of people aren't really familiar with. Sneggy Jemmy, she used to be Negative Gemini, and then she shortened it. Her partner is George Clinton, the vaporwave musician. George Clinton is a classic funk musician. I've been a big fan of her for a long time, and this record is just such a blast to me. Like, along with Scissor and Lana, it's probably one of the three records that I listen to maybe every single week and never got bored of. It's just such fun, well-written dance pop music. Like, it is just such a, like, rush she is clearly really reverential of a lot of classic pop like the last song on the floor to me i'm like this could have been a single from fever by kylie minogue like it's so yes, good doing a lot of two-step in garage but like it's all really fun and exciting i put it on when i rated um or even when i'm just i don't know what to listen to and i just want to listen to something easy and fun i put this record on i think it's truly truly incredible Speaking of dance music, my third record is a referential to another period of dance music history, which is Jesse Ware's That Feels Good. 
I don't know how else to say it with all those exclamation points. This is obviously Jessie's clear sister record follow-up to her previous album where she's been in this sort of like disco homage moment. Although I think this is kind of a different sounding album in some ways to that record. It's a lot more tightly stitched. It's a lot more upbeat, effervescent. The previous one, What's Your Pleasure, felt a lot darker to me and a little bit more sleazy, whereas this record feels a lot more focused on euphoria and brightness. Part of that too, and like I loved the last one, but I think that, that feels good is just that much better. Yeah. It's full live band. I think it leans into the funkier elements of disco, and she right. because of the whole thing with this London Afrobeat collective, Kokoroko, and I think you feel the like heft and deep yes. grooves of having just this full, yes. really tight band across it. And like even yeah. if the songs maybe on a song to song level aren't quite as good as the title says, it just feels really, really good. Yes, right. I mean, she literally says, "Pleasure is a." right at one point on it and I feel like that's kind of like her raison d'etre as an artist in this current moment like a lot of artists who are homaging disco do it on this very surfacey level and like I don't want to like drag Dua Lipa or whatever like she embodies <laughs> the pleasure like you can feel the pleasure like oozing out of her every core and what a vocalist I mean she just sounds so great on these songs I love the way she sings them just pure bursts of sunshine the lushness the funniness the cheekiness I mean I love that part of it I mean Shake the Bottle is so funny like there's a lot of real humor here that captures the spirit of disco in a way that I feel like a lot of these sort of like robotic 2020 updates on disco that we hear a lot like in Dr. Luke productions or on Dua Lipa songs like just don't have the feeling like it's really only like on a very top line level are we homaging disco. Jessie like feels like she is living inside of 1978 mm. on these records like there is a real feeling of the actual world of it like you feel like there's almost like a cinematic quality to a song like Hello Love like you can almost feel like you're transported into a movie from 1978 when you listen to that song like it's just the album that I guess I've listened to the most this year and just felt the happiest like it just makes me feel like I'm floating on a cloud and I mean the euphoria of the hook of pearls is just so incredible I mean it's just absolutely love this album stuck with me through the whole thing like I think this has just been an incredibly astute turn for her in the middle period of her career where it felt like things were kind of like going off the rails at a certain point in her previous mode she reinvented herself as the middle-aged queen or middle-aged quote-unquote in pop years queen of the dance floor maybe it speaks to a broader topic we were talking about earlier which is like this album kind of like exists on the fringes in many ways but like feels like a total world building exercise that has been very successful for her even if it's just on the terms that it's successful for her like she's not going to be touring arenas necessarily on this album but i feel like this entire move towards becoming like the queen of disco homage has given her career a second life that it probably wouldn't have had or might not have had otherwise so this album just is really great. And I also really enjoy the editing. Like the other album was very sprawling. This album like really gets the job done in and out very quick, which is something all three of my albums share. Very economical. These are all like 40 minute albums. And I appreciate a well thought out and well edited album. That's clearly something that binds all of the albums I liked this year together, except SOS being the opposite, being the one anomaly there. Let's pivot to songs. We each picked three songs that were our standouts of the year. So why don't you go first? Your first pick is Pink Panthers and Ice Spice's Boys a Liar Part 2. What about this song felt emblematic of this year to you and why did you like it? Well, one, it, w it was just one of those songs that was everywhere. I heard this absolutely yes. everywhere. And like, I think it was like a real kind of like arrival moment for Ice Spice, putting her rapping in this context where it sounds so right, even though it's nothing like anything else she's made is really amazing. And like her verse on this is my favorite verse of her whole short career thus far. Like that boy is a cap. See, he home, but I know where he at. Like, but he blowing her back. Think about me cause you know that it's fat. Damn. 
for the two of them. At that time, it was the biggest hit either of them had ever had. And it just whizzes past. Mm. But, you know, they really meet each other on this level, even though it's just Ice Spice adding a verse to a pre-existing song. It's just one of those hits where I'm like, everything about this feels right. At a coronating moment, in a moment of where there's a lot of ink being spilled about how hard it is for new pop stars to really break through here, you have two artists that came together and became greater than the sum of their parts in a way. And like both were kind of coronated through the success of this song. And I agree with you on both parts. My favorite Pink Panther song and my favorite Ice Spice song, which may be controversial, but I think there's something about the way that they come across together. They're both ethereal and nonchalant, but in like different ways. And I think that they complement each other so nicely on this song. And it's both fun and joyous and just a, one of the great surprise hits of the year, I think also. Like a real organic hit, you know, didn't feel like Karma Ice Spice remix, another song that is the opposite of this, where it's like felt like something that was being thrust onto the charts and like totally like jimmied. This felt like something that really bubbled up and organically gained steam in a way that was exciting and is always the best way for a song to be a hit. My first song is two songs, one of which we've touched on already, but it's more about the phenomenon of Padam Padam and Rush. We essentially got two iconic additions to the gay pop canon this year, which is like exciting, especially given that one of them actually comes from a queer artist, which like, you know, isn't as common as one would hope. And of course, one comes from someone who is essentially a gay man in Kylie Minogue. It was just really exciting to see two new, like, I think what will be, like, enduring gay pop hits get added to the world this year. And these were both hits. I mean, I know Padam was more of a mainstream hit over on your side of the pond. But over here, Kylie Minogue got a look that she has not gotten in 20 years in our country as a result of the virality of this song, which was so exciting to see. Unfortunately, I'm like a little bit more lukewarm on tension than I hoped to be given the kind of weirdness of Padam and like whatever. But I was so happy to see Kylie have this moment and it was so great to see. We just got two songs that I know I'll be playing in, you know, gay clubs for the rest of my life. And I was very excited about seeing the virality of these two songs really like catch fire. And it was just a great kind of movement. I felt like they were connected. They're like twin flames or something like that in that way. I agree. And the moment that each song had was fun. But to me, well, Padam Padam, I'm like, okay, great. Love Kylie. Anything she does, you know, I'm an apologist for even her lowest. But to me, this is like an Ava Max song. You know, it sounds like all those kind of European... pop stars who who are really kind of like anonymous oh, we, but Shad you know how many times on this podcast we read the opening line of your Sigrid review it's like probably like nine episodes of this show has that quote been read oh really I don't even remember oh my god Shad it's your greatest hit of all time I'll just read it to you really quickly just because it's such a classic there's a certain kind of pop song that plays at gay clubs that you don't really hear anywhere else you know the type punchy vaguely European empowering in a totally uncomplicated way songs like Ava Max's My Head and My Heart or Rita Ora's Bang Bang, good enough to dance to and catchy enough to sing along with, but mostly there to serve time between dancing on my own and stronger. <laughs> that was a bar. Okay, that's true. That's exactly how I feel. Like, padam, padam, I'm like, okay, it's fun. It's stupid. But to me, like, it doesn't sound like Kylie. And then the next single, mm. Tension, I'm like, damn, that is like a Kylie song. Just the weird, like, Daft right. Punkness of it. I love that. And yes. then Rush, yes. interestingly, like, I love Rush, but got me started and one of your girls I think are better songs and Mm -hmm. got me started originally I was like oh god this is so annoying and then now I'm like that's just a good song and I know that because it's it's not the annoying sample that gets stuck in my head it's his own chorus and I think that is my test for like when something has a really obvious interpolation I'm like what am I drawn to in this song is it the interpolation which I already loved or is it what's new and I think in that song I almost forget that the bad grade sample is in there but I I agree and I think it was interesting you know we see a lot gay Twitter or like kind of like gay culture or whatever keeps a lot of pop music afloat but you often don't see that translating into any kind of more mainstream success and I think these two songs were this perfect confluence of like pushing that into a broader zone and I agree it was like in summer it was just like a perfect fun moment. They were ever entwined to me for some reason because of the moment more about the moment than even the songs themselves which I both like maybe they both have lead singleitis where like people feel like they have to have a statement lead song that doesn't necessarily speak to the rest of the record. They both share that in common in some ways. All right, so your second song, which was maybe the biggest shock when you emailed me your list <laughs> the other day, is Renee Rapp's Talk Too Much. I'm here again, talk too much. 
tell me about why you like this song so much. It sounds like One Week of Danger demo version by The Virgins. Fans of the original <laughs> Gossip Girl will know that that song plays every time Chuck and Blair make out. But mm. also that's just like a classic song to me. And I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of talk about Indie Sleaze revival this year or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I listened to this song the first time I heard it. I was like, damn, this sounds like The Virgins. And I just think it's great. I think Renee Raff is great. The album is patchy for me, but I think she just like has this like magnetic quality and I think this is the best song on the album and it's funny and like really casual and catchy as well I just think it's a great song it's funny because I hadn't heard it before and I couldn't stop thinking about once again a topic that we seem to come up a lot against right now which is kind of like the long tail of Olivia Rodrigo sour like I mean this record is produced by Alexander 23 who worked on good for you there's a definite feeling of the mainstreaming of pop punk through theater kids that feels like a huge trend chapel it's Olivia and and it's also clearly Renee, who obviously came to fame as the star of Mean Girls the Musical. There's this certain like combination of theater kid and pop punk that feels like a movement in pop at this moment that definitely is encapsulated in this song. And also, I think the kind of like neurotic internal monologue also links this to SOS and SZA in some ways. I mean, this is definitely a trend in pop songwriting that feels, you know, heavily indebted to SZA's first record and, you know, which reached its apex on SOS. So, agree. This was a good song. Into this. I was kind of averse to Renee Rapp just because theater kids freak me out on a general level, but like, this was good. I got it. Me too. All right. Yeah. yeah, you too. My second song is Doja Cat's Paint the Town Red. Now, Doja Cat had a really interesting year. She essentially like started a shitstorm of epic proportions by telling her fans that she didn't love them. Which more people need to do. Yes, literally. Like she said what a lot of people like, are thinking. Doja say did that. nothing wrong this year. Doja, everything Doja did was correct. The album is good. Paint the Town well, Red is probably her best single uh, ever. Uh, well, okay, wait, hold on. I have actually like mixed feelings on the album, but I feel like this song achieved what I wish more of the album achieved, which was like it completely severs her from the Dr. Lukeification of her music and actually like nods directly at what a lot of this record nods at, which is kind of like boom bap sample based 90s hip hop, but it does so with an absolutely sticky ass chorus that is undeniable, so sing songy, so catchy, which is like obviously one of Doja Cat's greatest strengths. She's both an incredible technical rapper and an incredible pop songwriter. I mean, she's both of those things. It's a big key to a lot of her success. And this song manages to be both of those things, which is what a lot of her Dr. Luke material was, but without any of the Dr. Lukeness to it. It showed on a serious level that Doja Cat could still do the Doja Cat thing without needing to do the Dr. Luke thing. And that's why I think it's both the best single of her career and the most important single of her career. Bitch, I said what I said. I'd rather be famous instead. I let all that get to my head. I don't care, I paint the town red. Mm, she the devil, she a bad little bitch, she a rebel. She the Unfortunately, I wish there was a little bit more of that pop intuition on Scarlet. It is there in Agora Hills. It's there in a few other songs, but the album on a whole for me skews a little bit towards a technical showcase of her rapping ability or trying to shore up that part of her persona, almost like self-consciously for me in a way that I'm missing some of the pop flourishes, but this song is all of the things a Doja Cat song should be. It's funny, it's lacerating, it's pop, it's rap, it's everything that I would wish for from her. It's demonic. Her greatest song, one of the greatest songs of the year, the greatest snub at the Grammys for song and record of the year for me. And like, can't say enough about how much I like this song. Just so, 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 so good. Yeah, I totally agree. Just my whole thing with Doja this year is like, well, artists need to tell their fans to chill out and that yeah. they hate them. And that, you know, you don't, you don't know me. Like the best thing Doja did all year was tell her fans, like, you don't know me. We're not friends. Yeah, I'm making music yeah. for you to listen to, but it doesn't have to be more than that. And I respect the hell out of that. Yeah, I completely agree. She broke the fourth wall in a way that like I don't know there's a big lie that goes on between pop stars and their fans this is a subject for another conversation that's ultimately like pop stars are not your friend they are selling you products and you're paying them so like, I don't know that's not friendship to me so I agree I appreciated what she did all right so your third song is Empress of and Rina Sawayama's Kiss Me Kiss me kiss me slowly slowly whisper whisper show me show me that I'm the one and only. Kiss me, kiss me slowly, slowly, whisper, whisper, show me. Show me that I'm the one and only. 
What do you love about this song? I heard this for the first time when I saw Empress Elf play in London uh, a few months ago. And I was just like, well, one, I was really surprised by how much the crowd was into the show as a whole. Empress Elf was one of those artists who I was like, oh, that's kind of sad. You know, she kind of became like an also ran, you know, I was a big fan of her at the start of her career, but then things seemed to be petering out. But the crowd was so into the whole show. But this song, I was like, that it's like a top tier Backstreet Boys song. That yeah. Just like how like tightly this song is written and like so catchy. Like I was singing it mm. for days and weeks after the show before it came out I'm just like what a great song and like I'm not at all a Rina Sawayama fan in fact I would describe myself as an avowed hater and I hate everything about her career and I think she's annoying as hell and I'm like you know what if you want people to care about you and your career maybe write some good songs but this oh kind of song I was like you know Rina needs to sing on this kind of beat she needs to get herself to write her a bunch of songs I love this track i think it's so fun and well written and like referential in a way that kind of like meets the level of what it's referencing okay i love that it was really i hadn't heard this before but it's a great song and i largely stand with your arena perspective as well my last song is the most unexpected song that is probably unfortunately going to top my spotify rap this year it is addison ray's i got it bad Listen, this is not usually my thing. I mean, talk about like your quote from the Sigrid review. I mean, Addison Rae couldn't fit more squarely into that category, obviously. But I just have to say like this song fucking bangs. It's so good. It's giving like blackout era Britney. It's giving the most down the middle, well-written electro pop song of the year. I don't know. Like this song just has an incredible hook. I feel like Addison actually delivers it very effectively. She purrs, she coos. The chorus just hits. There's not much to say about this like I don't have like a ton of amazing critical insight into why this song bangs as hard as it does but it's honestly the stupidest pop song of the year that I returned to the most it just loved 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 this song it just is what a lot of these girls wish they were doing unfortunately this and to die for are just insane like i i insane love them so i good. love those songs i think they're just amazing addison has this knack for writing real stupid stupid lyrics like well <laughs> addison does who knows who's writing but like so, yes addison pen to paper poetry yeah uh, when she's like i think it's really something i'm like yes <laughs> like that's what a good bad <laughs> lyric but just it just he goes. looks like a boy next door from my boy band poster yeah like it just is you know there's nothing more we can really exactly. say but you there's know nothing, it's, it. it's really not that deep it's just so yeah. good no i'm i'm a bit i'm a tiny bit more of a to die for head but i think both these songs are like impeccable like very high on my list yes. all right so Two last things before we get out of here. Any major disappointments this year? I mean, we came together to talk about our collective gasp at Endless Summer Vacation. <laughs> that was one that came to mind for me. Anything else that you were sort of looking forward to this year that just really didn't deliver for you? Yeah, I mean, Endless Summer Vacation was my fairly big one. Not that, you know, we can expect anything from a Miley record. Kim Petty, <laughs> like, what was what yeah, happened there? Yeah, Kim Petty, that was bad. Where did you net out on Problematique? I don't really like it. It's better, mm -mm. but I don't think it's really... Better that good and i think it's as kind of like the last dying gasp of like a failing empire it was actually really depressing mm. for me to watch the way they dropped that i think to try and spike ticket sales like to this tour that no one's going to and i'm pretty sure Ugh. they're doing like stealth tiktok marketing like i've seen a lot of people like at the shows being like what an amazing show kim petras put on i'm like oh like you're so much better than this she's out lost in the wilderness we're in the wilderness of the kim petras moment at the uh, unfortunately it gives me no pleasure to say that yeah it's like a pretty spectacular fall i would say yeah. aside from that a lot of pop this year has more scanned as not noteworthy to me rather than like particularly disappointing that's kind of it for me like a lot of it is very bland yeah. and i'm sick of this dan twitter kind of like media cycle of like oh my god, this person, I'm like, all these people suck. You know, give me more <laughs> stuff like Scissor and Lana, like stuff that's really crazy. Any other disappointments for you? The, honestly, those were my two main ones too. I mean, the Kim Petras thing is 
we've talked about it a lot on the show already, so I won't wax poetic about it anymore, but it's tragic and sad. And, you know, I had high hopes. They just lost the thread at some point. Like, they've lost everything that made her exciting and cool in the first place somehow in this transition towards attempting mainstream success. It's just... And, and it speaks to a bigger problem that we were addressing at the beginning of the show, which is, like, Kim Petras had a great career. She had a really loyal, fairly large fan base who enjoyed her idiosyncratic material. They tried to sort of slot her into a mode of pop stardom that, like is increasingly inaccessible to people and like also like isn't fun or cool or like doesn't provide an avenue for good music. I think Kim Petras would have been better off and maybe this is where she's going to head going back to like making music for the people that loved her to begin with and stopping trying to like make American pop radio hits. Like it's just like who needs that? Then you're just Tate McRae. I don't know. It's just who needs it? Greedy is a better song than anything on the Kim Petras albums. Yes, that's true. But she's just not a particularly interesting artist to me. All right. So last question here is any honorable mentions that you were considering for your list, but you just want to make sure you give a shout out to. I'll just name a quick, really quickly for me, which were Desire I Want to Turn Into You, an album I liked but didn't necessarily love, but thought had a, a number of songs that stuck with me throughout the year. Red Moon and Venus, the Kali Uchis album, I really enjoyed that record a lot this year. Weirdly, one of my weirdest ones that like I can't explain in any sort of rational way is the Weekend and Madonna song Popular. I don't know why I gravitated towards this song, but it was maybe the first Madonna appearance that I haven't cringed at since 2012. That song is really, really good. On My Mama by Victoria Monet. Really enjoyed that song a lot. Hollywood Baby by 100 Gex. And Needs by Tanache, a song I almost considered putting on my list. Really enjoyed Needs as well. Anything that you want to note that you were considering? And I know we also maybe want to touch on Tunnel by Lana. That's why I didn't bring it up. Let's just not talk about Lana because I would have to go for another hour. <laughs> but yeah, Lana, like Lana Jenny and SZA. Those are my three this year that most struck a chord with me. If you want to hear Shad and I talk about Lana, you can go listen to an entire episode of us talking about did you know that there's a tunnel so we'll just leave that at that in the city the charlie and sam smith song i think is really incredible i've listened to that a lot since it came out i think we've kind of touched on the pop records that i really enjoyed a weak year for pop overall but the stuff that i liked i really really liked which is a nice feeling in the spirit of not talking about lana this year why don't we pick a song from tunnel that stuck with you over the last, whatever, six months? What's a song that we could send the show out on from Tunnel that just stuck to your ribs? God, every song on this album is my absolute favorite. But, you know, I think a really great Lana song, and like, not maybe not even my favorite, but just such a great song, is Margaret. What a song. Like, that's a really beautiful song. I love it. Agree. And also, you know, she did famously go to Jack and Margaret's wedding this year and I think maybe even sung this song to them at the wedding. So let's go out on Margaret by Lana Del Rey, a song that almost made both Shad and I's lists. Shad D'Souza, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me once again. As always, a pleasure to be here. A pleasure. When you know, you know. Oh